0: Modern biblical studies usually begins from an assumption that there is an established original text and clear exegetical genres that extend from the original. Reception history is structured around the premise that they are investigating how individuals and communities have interpreted and deployed the original in later contexts. But what if there is no original text? What if the border between origins and receptions are unable to be clearly drawn? If this is the case... Isn't all of biblical studies reception history? Brennan Breed asks these provocative questions in his new book, Nomadic Text, a theory of biblical reception history, published with Indiana University Press in 2014. After wrestling with questions of origins, borders, contexts, authors, and audiences, he offers a new general theory of reception history. He argues that instead of trying to contain texts and return them to their original context— we should understand them as mobile or nomadic. That would mean text significance are produced through movement and variation of interpretation. Of course, some readings have a stronger set of textual resources to justify an interpretive perspective. However, Breed argues that we should not prioritize the earliest applications of text as the true meaning. Breed's nomadic reception history is illustrated through an analysis of Job. 1925-27, through across time and space. From this example, we witness the broad spectrum of interpretations and how the text transforms across its historical and temporal trajectories. Reed's theoretically rich and engaging methodology will be useful to anyone interested in how texts are interpreted and deployed in social life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without further ado... Here's my conversation with Brennan Breed. Welcome, Brennan.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, wonderful to to be able to, to chat.
0: Yeah. Now this is a this is a great book and uh, very theoretically rich. And I think everyone that studies religion or is interested in the study of religion will really benefit from it. So I hope they will pick it up because we certainly won't be able to cover all the details here. Um, but before we get into the book, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background on how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps um, some mentors that have been influential in either your approach or the content you're looking at. How did you end up where you are? Great. Yeah. Thanks. Uh Yeah, I think it's important to to, uh,
1: sort of name ourselves and who we are and where we come from in these sorts of situations. And um, so, yeah, I grew up in a a family that uh, read the Bible. We were a Christian family and um, uh, my uh, parents um, sort of were between denominations at a point uh, when I was growing up. And um, there were times where we went to church more often than others. but uh, my parents, uh, my mom is Catholic and my dad is Methodist. And uh, um, I remember it uh, when I was a kid going to different kinds of churches. Um, uh, but one thing I remember is my, my parents would read the Bible to me at night and things like that. So one of my earliest memories are my brother and I sitting there. My dad read to us portions of Exodus and things like that. And uh, So I've always been interested in biblical stories, biblical narratives and so on. Um, uh, but it, really the academic study of the Bible became important important to me um when i was uh, i was actually working for a church in virginia beach um and i was uh, uh working with the youth group and I just got really interested in biblical studies. And actually, it's funny. One day, I was in a Barnes and Noble uh, at a shopping center in uh, Virginia Beach, and picked up a uh, commentary on Genesis written by Walter Brueggemann, and uh, kind of read through it. And I thought, this is really neat. Uh, I really enjoyed the way he was writing, but also some of that more academic side of biblical studies began to um, uh, become really uh, intriguing to me. So I, I basically said, uh, "This is kind of stuff I want to do." So I started to talk to some mentors and some folks that I knew, and I took a, a course sort of to check out what academic biblical studies was about. I really liked it so much that I applied to seminary uh, and uh, met with some people who had uh, been to sort of different schools and and uh, ended up deciding to go to Princeton Seminary um, because I had a giant biblical studies faculty and some, uh, some some folks who did really different kinds of things, some more literary theory things, some more ancient Near Eastern stuff. Uh, um, and pretty quickly when I showed up, I got hooked in uh, the study of Hebrew Bible. Uh, and uh, my professors that I connected with there, uh, my introductory Old Testament professors uh, in my introductory course were uh, Jack Lapsley and uh, Dennis Olson, and they were did a great job introducing the text. And uh, my TA, my, my teaching assistant, uh, who's now a uh, uh, tenured professor at Temple, uh, Jeremy Skipper, um, uh, he did a great job as well. And so after some uh, co- consultations, I ended up uh, deciding to, to pursue biblical studies and while i was there at the uh, Prison seminary uh, patrick miller was a great uh, sort of mentor and a, um, someone who, who who was really kind to me and, and gave me a lot of his own time uh. But also, Chun Liang Xiao, who is a a wonderful biblical scholar and, and, you know, started out as this kind of hardcore ancient Near Eastern biblical scholar and over time has uh, developed into someone who is um, very interested in what's now called reception history or the study of uh, what biblical texts have done uh, um, over the course of the millennia that they've been in sort of circulation. Uh, And not just uh, in narrow terms, in terms of academic biblical studies uh, or what theologians have said about them or trained biblical scholars, but Taking into account uh, in our in our own study of biblical texts, what. What lots of people, what the broad variety of people have in the world have done with biblical texts—not um, uh, just academic folk, but also musicians and um, folks working in politics and uh, folks uh, who are making visual art and uh, poetry and drama and uh, um, um, I mean how it works in liturgy and uh, so on. So, in any event, basically just looking at everything biblical studies, uh, biblical texts have done, and considering that a part of biblical studies. So, uh, while I was there at Princeton the Seminary, I got in, engaged in this kind of uh, study. And And uh, I ended up going to study at Emory uh, University for my PhD with Carol Newsom, who really encourages this kind of work and um, created an interdisciplinary uh, sort of program at at Emory. And I got to work with uh, art historians like Elizabeth Paston and Walter Mellium while I was there who were very engaged in uh, biblical interpretation uh, in Christian and Jewish art throughout the centuries. Um, and I uh, uh, also got to work with Herbert Kessler, who was visiting from Johns Hopkins, fantastic art historian, and uh, very interested in sort of theology and biblical studies and so on. And uh, I also got to work with uh, comparative literature folk, a theory kind of folk, uh, like Jeffrey Bennington and uh, Jill Robbins. Um, and uh, got to take courses in philosophy with uh, Rudolf McCreel and some other uh, sort of uh, uh, Folks who specialize in, uh, uh, some especially German, transcendentalism. So in any event, there's uh, just many uh, fascinating lines of inquiry that uh, Emory, as an interdisciplinary school, uh, encouraged me to, to pick up. And so while I was at Emory, I began to think about this question. Um, uh, how do we study reception history? How do we study... We've we, we got a pretty good handle on the kinds of arguments we make as biblical scholars to try to figure out what a biblical text may or may not have meant in an ancient context. Uh, but when we start asking questions about like the Middle Ages or early modern uses of uh, biblical study of biblical text, or when we look at modern advertising or contemporary advertising and how, how the texts are used there. Um, uh, there's a bit of um, uh, theoretical work I think that needs to be done uh, to, to push us to think hard about how we do what we do, the kind of methods or, or, or you know, approaches we use um, and uh, how we create scholarly arguments and kind of what we're trying to do, even kind of mapping the field. Like what, where do we start looking Uh What do we look at? Um, how do we, how do we uh, make arguments about these sorts of things? So, uh after a couple of years of playing around with those ideas, I, I really figured out that uh, um, I was starting to lose uh, some of my understanding of what I thought a biblical text even was. Um, and some of those conversations that I was having with folks in philosophy and theory and art history, they were asking me to think about this notion of the original text Um that uh, people have been pushing at for a long time in biblical studies, but um, but still seems pretty dominant, um, uh, even sometimes in uh, mutated forms. Uh, so in any event, the idea that people have when they come to biblical texts generally, is that um, there's some sort of uh, uh, original author, and there's some sort of original original manuscript or something, uh, like an autograph, almost. Uh, Somebody wrote out a text, um, and then it was published in some way, and that word is still even used in biblical studies uh, to describe these ancient texts. So there's a kind of official or a published form or, um, a, uh, uh, sometimes an authorized form, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's got some sort of authority, um, that's been granted to it or something. Um, so, Nathan, anyway, this, these, these sorts of questions popped up in my head. Um, we now know that biblical texts, uh, weren't, none of them were just written, uh, you know, sort of full cloth at one go. Um, biblical texts are, traditional texts they've been built over time by many different hands um some of them uh, uh emerge in several different forms um even by the time that we would consider them to be sort of finished uh and then whenever we call them finished there's always inevitably people who are putting things on there or changing it afterwards and so the questions begin to pop up in my mind how in the world can we uh can we ever um consider something finished that's a traditional product that's have gone through you know, several hundred years of revisions by a community over time, and even uh, has kind of emerged in several different communities uh, uh, as, as an important text, and those different communities have started to treat it in different ways and add things to it and take things away from it and so on. Um, so what we find, uh, uh, even by the time that we would consider that there was a, a biblical text, that these texts have been uh, compiled into something that we might consider uh, a sacred body of literature, um, is what the biblical scholar Eugene Ulrich has called pluriformity. That is, uh, there's several different versions of each Biblical book, sometimes minor differences, but sometimes major differences uh, between these different biblical books. Uh, by the time that anyone would consider there to be uh, a Bible, um, so this this presents what what I saw was a philosophical problem. Um, my notions of what a text were and uh, what an author was, and um, my notions of what I was doing as a biblical scholar to take a text and put it in the context and get a meaning. Um, we're all we're all being uh, challenged and shaken by really just looking at the data. So that drove me to thinking my philosophy and theory and so on. And this book started out. I, when I, when I, when I applied this to my PhD program, uh, I started out by saying, uh, well, I'm going to write this reception history of Job, the book of Job chapter 19 verses 25 to 27. People generally know, uh, or have heard at some point the, the famous opening lines of this, for I know my redeemer lives at the last, uh, uh, he will stand upon the earth. So this is uh, used in lots of different traditions for lots of different reasons, but it's a famous, famous text. Um, some people recognize it for Handel's Messiah and so on. So I wanted to look at how this text was used in different traditions, uh, different communities throughout time. Uh, but when I started to do this work of looking at this project, I, I started with a problem. Where do I start this study? if I start to look at the reception of the text or like what the text meant after it's been published or how it's been used or the forms it took after publication or authorization or finishing or the final form was reached or completed. Um, I've got to figure out when that was like, when who's the last person who was allowed to edit this text um of the book of Job. And that question got me started in a, a really some bunch of rabbit trails. And so this book is really me trying to figure out um, uh, what do I think a biblical text is and what do I think a context is and how do these things actually work? Um, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and yeah,
0: it's, sorry, yeah. It, it's interesting to hear uh, kind of your, your journey through this because it really gives us a lot of insights uh, as, as a reader of your text, um, you know, how you come to these questions and how, how you try to find answers to them. So, uh, one of the questions related to to what you've been saying here that kind of sets us up is this notion of a border. Uh, you you kind of uh, set us up here in the beginning of the book thinking about borders, um, yeah. and we can see probably what led you to that. But um, <clears throat> as you work through this, what what are some of the possible definitions of a borderline, and uh, how do you how do you resolve the interpretive borderline between an original text and reception? Where where did you end up, I guess?
1: Yeah, so, so I start with this question of borders, uh, precisely because, uh, if I want to work in reception history, if I am, if I'm taking for granted the fact that my, my study is going to focus on what happens after a biblical text is published or authorized or final form or whatever, um, then, you know, what it's done after it became Bible, uh, then I've got to figure out the border between when it was Bible and when it was, when it was something after Bible or when it was already Bible, um, So when is this uh, uh, separation? And as I I started to think about it, there were a bunch of things that that were involved in this kind of borderline. Um, There are uh, authors in the time before the borderline, the people who are authoring the biblical text. And then afterwards, there are scribes that are supposed to transmit but not add to or remove from the biblical text. This is a big, big transition point. Um, It's also a transition point in terms of the the text itself. I mean, so there's this uh, kind of, uh, unfinished text. And then there's a moment in which it's finalized or finished. Um, and then the things that come afterwards are translations or corruptions. If you start to change it and things like this. So when additions become corruptions, um, there are all sorts of, uh, things that are presumed by this kind of borderline. So I started to ask questions about the borderline itself. Um, and well, I just started to think about borders in general. And uh, what I came to realize is that uh, we oftentimes treat these kinds of borders like original, uh, unoriginal, or whatever comes after the original, um, uh, as and, or the borders between identities uh, of peoples or nations or uh, practices and so on, even religions. We treat these things a lot of times as natural uh, and as real in the sense that they come before us. Uh, they precede. Human intervention in them, uh, uh, that, that, that there's some sort of, um, uh, reality to them that is given or natural or necessary or, uh, you know, uncontingent. Um, and that what we're doing as scholars is to try to study and find these real borderlines that occur. And the thing that, that I ended up realizing was that, uh, borderlines, uh, are products of, uh, the concept of identity. Um, and when we draw, I, when we we sort of think about identity uh, and I started to think more and more about this concept of identity, um, and which presumes, of course, the concept of difference, uh, you know, if you say that something is, uh, there's an identity, like for example, uh, the notion of American, what does it mean to be an American? I'm a true American. You're not a true American. As the rhetoric is going today. Um, this idea of the identity of an American, uh, we can think this is like a natural or normal thing, but the more we look into any of these identities, the more we see that they're constructed, um, they're contingent, uh, they occur over time, um, and they change over time. And, uh, so I started to realize that, uh, these borderlines are effects, um, of processes, uh, that are undergoing change and that are not natural, uh, natural in the sense of like already given, unchangeable, uh, they're not, they're not ideals, um, they're, they're, there are things that are undergoing changes. We even speak, and that can be changed. So, the one thing you can say about the border is then, uh, and some people would say, "Well, then it's just made up, and it doesn't matter; it's not real." Um, so, one of the things that uh, I found quite interesting is that uh, uh, those borders are quite real. Uh, they real as in not pre-given, but real as in they actually have real effects. Uh, these effects, which are produced almost like illusions from uh, from concepts of identities. Uh, like, a, I'm a real American. You're not a real American. I mean, we can say that, well, that's an illusion. There's, there's no such thing as a real American and so on. Uh, you know, who, who's going to be that real American, the, uh, the ideal American or something? Um, it's going to be different for all of us. And we're all going to come up with different lists of things that make a real American or something. Um, but, uh, uh, but the, the truth is that those borderlines, uh, do have effects. Um, when we, w- there are people who are, uh, sent out of the country of the United States of America because they don't, Count as Americans according to a body of law, which is contingent and changeable, but also produces real effects. So what I realized was um, those borderlines between the biblical, uh, so the pre-biblical period when the biblical text was forming and then the moment where it became Bible and then the stuff that comes afterwards, which is supposedly just supposed to be transmission and if you don't transmit it correctly, it's, co- it's a corruption, um, or it's, uh, you know, a translation, which is lesser, uh, or it's a, it's a bad version of the Bible. If it kind of deviates from what what was expected to be the, the real Bible, which occurred at this period in which it was published this moment in time, those kinds of, uh, effects are created after the fact by particular groups for particular purposes. That doesn't mean they're not real, but it means we can study them. So for example, uh, Different communities or groups throughout history have located this moment of origin of the Bible in different places and different times for different purposes. Um, and so what we can do is uh, historicize those moments of the production of borders uh, and study them as things that really do change. Just like we would now look at this, the border of the United States and not say this is something that naturally occurs, um, but this is something that is produced uh, by historical events um, and that can be studied over time. Does that make sense about borders and so on? So in any event, like now it's kind of, it it shifts the question away from what's the real original text of the Bible. Uh, and it shifts it towards what happened, (laughs) um, who who are the who are the who are the groups of people who are interested in these texts and what kind of texts did they have and it turns out when we look at uh, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls which uh, you know texts that uh, uh, the kind of oldest biblical texts that we have this kind of hoard or cache of texts uh, that were found in the, the Judean desert uh, in the 20th century um, but which are uh, date to sometime between the third century and uh, the so, so BCE uh, and some in the uh, right around the first century BCE so we got this horde of ancient biblical texts and what we find is that there's lots of different versions of biblical texts in there. Uh, there's, you can even kind of categorize them in different categories uh, or, or types of, of, of texts in particular books. Um, so we can see that the biblical text was in flux w- well into the time into which people think that texts were solid or fixed and so on. So in any event, these the, uh, the, the study of a reception historian, someone who's interested in studying what biblical texts have done, uh, can't just start with this moment of origin, uh, and then move on into the future. Um, it has to take into account the entire history of a biblical text, starting with the, the period of formation in which it was changing and then always continued to change. Yeah.
0: And you do this well. Uh, you, you look at some major kind of, uh, critical text projects and, and see how they're thinking about this concept of original text. And, uh, so that's, that's, uh, the one side of the border. Um, which you uh, make very small, right? If we say there, there really aren't too many original texts, um, most of what biblical studies then becomes reception history in, in your kind of uh, reading. Um, so uh, we then need to kind of re-theorize some of the, the notions we use. And, and you do this um, uh, throughout the book, um, but in the middle of the book, you, you talk about biblical zookeeping. Um, and oh, right. thinking about how you think about text and context and author and audience and meaning and significance. And, um, can you, can you walk us through some of how you came to reconceptualize some of these categories that become important for biblical studies? Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, uh,
1: so like I was saying, if we, if we look at the kind of actual history of biblical texts, there's never a moment in which they kind of stop moving or changing or being added to or subjected from, um, yeah, is, there's uh, vowels that are added to the uh, Hebrew text of the Bible of, of the of the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, in the Middle Ages and so on. I mean, uh, which are considered there's some preservations of uh, older vocalizations of these texts, but still, it's an addition to the text itself. There's always this like history of, of adding stuff or taking stuff away from the Bible, um, even in minor ways. And so this search for an original text. Um, and, and it, this, is, this is really driven by um, some of the confessional um, uh, and you know, religious convictions of biblical scholars. They're asked by, we, we're, we are asked by our um, uh, religious communities to, to give them the real text of the Bible. And so we have to decide what that is and that's the sort of process of building what we call a critical edition like a real edition of the Bible um the the, the real bible the true bible um and this has been a conflict uh you know ever since uh, the days when the, the I mean, there are stories in the the Talmud of um sort of biblical text being in the temple court in temple in the temple grounds and uh there are different uh scholars uh you know in ancient Judaism that were so we're studying these texts and, you know, different priests or kind of our scribes so were marking them up and kind of correcting them. Uh, so there was all, there was even kind of multiple versions of the text uh, at the moment at which people would say, well, there must have been this moment of publication or authorization of a real text. So my argument is these things have always been changing. There was never a moment in which there was just one real version of a text that everyone thought was done and finished and so on. There were always multiple communities that had different versions of these texts, and they were always in some some degree of flux. Um, So what we need to do then is study all of these things, all these versions of the Bible, all of these versions of biblical texts, uh, and consider them to be real things, even translations and so on, and not uh, hierarchize them, not put them in a natural or necessary hierarchy. That doesn't mean we can't choose what to study, but it means that we can't say that everyone needs to recognize that, say the Masoretic text of the Bible, which is a, a particular uh, a, a version of the Hebrew Bible um, kept by a particular group of scribes uh, and preserved and sort of transmitted by this group of scribes. Um, uh, and that's, that's generally considered the the um uh sort of premier version of the Bible the the, the real sacred version of the Bible for uh, uh, uh for rabbinic Jews and for uh, many Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians today um, but there's always been different communities that that disagree about this so when we study as scholars we should say well what what do lots of people think about this? Or if we want to study one community, we need to say up front, we're studying what this community wants to study. Um, or, you know, this is my community, my religious community. I I want to study what we think the Bible is. Um, but those sorts of identifications uh, should should come up front, and we shouldn't think that there's natural or necessary criteria by which to organize um, a hierarchy of biblical texts into more real or less real or more sacred or less sacred. And so once I move past that and I say, okay, well, uh, now I've got this kind of, problem uh, or fuzzy borderline of the text and then i don't really know where to start or, or finish there's another problem too and that's the problem of context even if you find one text that's the real true sacred text or this is the real original authorized version of a biblical text um, however you want to define that you still have the problem they say well i'm going to put it in my context and it's going to create a meaning um and the 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 uh metaphor that I I was in a class with Jeffrey Bennington, uh, a uh, scholar of uh, French literature, but also um, uh, of sort of theory and philosophy and so on at uh, Emory university. And he was uh, talking about how a lot of textual scholars, um, uh, and they act like zookeepers (laughs) that they, they're uh, they're trying to, uh, they they think their job or we think our job um, is to look at a text that's somehow out in the wild Um, when we read a text from a different time and place and so on, it's, it's escaped its cage. Uh, and our job is to put it back in its cage, which will give it its true meaning. In other words, um, uh, if you come across a tiger, you know, uh, loose in the city of Atlanta where I live, um, people would freak out, uh, and they would try to kind of capture it and put it back in its in its cage, which is supposed to somehow recreate its original habitat or something like that. Um, and that's the, what what a tiger really is supposed to do. Uh, but the problem with biblical text is that uh, there's no home for them to be put into. Uh, these are texts that have been uh, under construction uh, for millennia. <laughs> and uh, if you look at, say, the, the story of Noah or something, I mean, it's found in the book of Genesis, and you can say, well, the original version of Genesis was... Published and authorized and circulated, and uh, uh, the original version is in was was found in the in the Temple uh, of Jerusalem in the, uh, f- the first century or something um, uh, CE, or just before the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy. Okay, so uh, maybe that maybe that's that's the case. Uh, um, but the point is, that the the story of Noah found in the Book of Genesis doesn't date from that time. It was. Passed down from generations and generations of people before, and it was resituated in several different bodies of literature before and it ended up in something like the book of Genesis and the Torah, uh, or Bereshit and the Torah. So, so, so there's all sorts of layers. It's a layer cake of Context. So what context are we supposed to put original text back into, even if we find an original text? Where, where does the story of Noah give its true meaning or something like that? Um, I mean, you can even say that the story of Noah seems to draw and and pull from uh, and reshape, refashion uh, older uh, Mesopotamian uh, uh, mythological literature. Um, so these the, the the sort of many flood narratives that we have uh, from the ancient Near East. So what's the true context in which to put the story of Noah? Well, my argument ends up being there can't be this one true context uh, because all these contexts are, are, the story of Noah worked in all these different contexts and it continued to work in uh, in the first century BCE or CE. Uh, and it continued to work in other communities who took this text and took it to other places and even other religious uh, traditions and so on. So um, what I would encourage, what I'd be end up encouraging is instead of thinking of context as something that traps a text uh, and is supposed to contain it or, uh, that there's one correct place for this text, thinking of a text as an escaped zoo animal, and our job is to put it back in its original context. Um, uh, instead, to study wherever the text is, wherever it goes, what does it do? How does it act? Um, what sorts of things does it accomplish, or uh, are there things that it doesn't accomplish? Uh, in particular, how can it be twisted to certain ends in different contexts? Um, uh, how does it push back against certain contexts in which it, in which it is found in which it emerges and ultimately, um, I've got a couple of different metaphors and the, the book's kind of full of metaphors and other uh, kind of uh, uh, like imagistic uh, um, uh, I mean I'm, I'm trying to really in this book think about other ways uh, to think about or conceptualize texts. Um, because so many of our concepts of texts are uh, baking these ideas of original or contextual or or author. Um, and so part of what I want to get at is to ask us to think about text in different ways. And I try to uh, encourage people to think about text as um, things that wander through lots of different contexts um, and find their home in many different contexts. And what I end up pointing to is a lot of... Uh, it's kind of theoretical literature that ends up pointing out that the, the point of writing, like the reason that anyone writes anything, the reason anyone writes a book or anyone writes a letter or whatever is so that their words can be read out of their context. That that's what writing does. Um, it allows someone's words uh, to be read or interpreted in a different place in a different time. And that's what writing does. So one of the things i point out is that, uh, reading out of context is actually a feature, not a bug of, of the technology of writing. Um, so thinking about how writing acts in different contexts is part of writing itself. Um, so for when we, when we scholars approach biblical texts, it's a great question to ask, how would this text have functioned in the first century BCE in, uh, the, sort of Jerusalem temple structure uh, in what would have been considered sort of a uh, uh Normal uh, Judaism of the period, or whatever, sort of a, a um, official Judaism of the period. Um, we can also ask, you know, how would this thing have functioned in the ancient Near East uh, before that? Uh, in uh, sort of tribal uh, uh, ancient Israel, how could this thing have functioned in early monarchical Israel? How could this story have functioned in you know? If you talk about the story, no, it goes all it goes all the way back to very ancient things, it seems. Um, so we can ask how this thing functions in different contexts for different communities over time, and uh, and then continue uh, after. What what's presumed to be the end of the biblical period and really just kind of follow this thing out, um, follow these texts out as they really kind of travel around the world and through time. Uh, so in any event, that sense of uh, trapping or, 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 returning something to an ancient context, which is its true home for this text. Instead, if we scholars think of ourselves as uh, uh, not biologists that want to, or zookeepers that want to capture texts and bring them back, but instead we're almost like us scientists that, that, to track animals that are mobile, uh, uh, that we, we track um, uh, uh, sort of animals as they travel the globe, uh, migrant animals in a way. Um, and uh, we see how a migratory bird uh, functions in different contexts as it traverses the globe, uh, you know, in order to uh, find food in the spring and something like that. So, uh, uh, thinking of new ways for, for scholars to imagine how they study text, I think, is crucial for us. But those two big questions of the original text and original context, when new theories and new ways to think about how we uh, imagine um, text to have worked and, and still work.
0: And this uh, basically uh, is part of what your your kind of revised reception history consists of, and where this this idea of a nomadic text come from uh, comes from. Um, could you could you just kind of uh, set up the alternatives here because? Uh, when you're talking about this in the book, you say that others might think of the reception as a refugee. Some might think of it as a migrant. You imagine uh, it, it as a nomad in this, this, uh, this understanding. So could, right. you t- could you talk about what these other models are and how the utility of imagining biblical text as nomadic uh, works as a general theory of reception theory? I guess the question <laughs> yeah. is, why is your way the best?
1: Oh uh, yeah great yeah, well, my is the best because I wrote it right No, uh yeah it's uh well, I think it works you know so this this is is just kind of the result of my uh thinking about how texts work and um uh the texts are designed uh the whole technology of the text is that they travel uh they're supposed to travel out of their context be read and the the ultimate notion of a text is that it can be read even in the as Derrida says even in the ultimate absence of or the death of the author so if I write a fire a letter and I die, uh, you'll still be able to read that letter even after my death in my radical absence. Um, uh, so, so, uh, part of thinking about how texts travel and how they, you know, so on, I was thinking about this notion of the traveling text and our role as scholars and our, the way our conceptions, uh, structure our reactions to texts and, and what we think we're supposed to do with them. Um, and so, uh, one way of thinking about the text, I said, was a kind of a, a text as a refugee. Um, and that is that there's some crisis that has made the text. So history moves on and the text has lost its place in history. Uh, so, uh, just like a refugee might be pushed out of their home country because of a crisis, uh, right. So Syrian refugees today are, 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 uh, being forced out of their own homes in their countries and they're, they're looking for stability somewhere else. Well, um, in many cases, the point is that, uh, uh one hopes to be able to return refugees home to a better situation. Uh, that is, it's a temporary stay in a new context, which is ultimately not the home. uh, so thinking of text this way, I mean, many people think, well, this text kind of got to me. This is kind of like the zookeeper analogy. The text got to me, but it doesn't belong here and it doesn't work here. So I got to return it to its home. And that's that I got to put it back in its ancient context. That's that's where it really belongs. Um, so that's kind of the refugee model. Uh, there's another model we might say is the migrant. Um, and I just mentioned migratory birds. But, you know, this is this is a. Uh, uh, Sort of drawing from that same idea, and there's a problem with that idea of the mig- of the migrant. That is, it's someone who goes somewhere uh, and then comes back, usually in kind of regular patterns. Uh, so, so the you know you're kind of moving along uh, a trajectory. So the migratory bird uh, goes and returns regularly from one place to another. Um, that is, uh, uh, there's you're at home here, you're at home there, and so on. There's a couple of places where you're home. Uh, and a lot of textual scholars might even act this way, too. Like, there's uh, this kind of famous uh, way of thinking about text that uh, Christopher Stendhal uh, uh, mentioned, or he, he, I guess, devised this. Um, I've heard it used with his name a lot. But, uh, you know, the, what the text meant then, what it means now. Um, that there's a couple of places in history where this text is home, and we're one of them, and so on. Um, there's a, a – the, what I'm trying to pressure us to think about is the text as an, a nomad. <laughs> And how nomadic life seems to work is that uh, I, I don't know uh, by experience, but um, in terms of reading about how nomadic life works, um, the nomad uh, is on the move all the time. And home is being on the move, uh, being settled somewhere makes it not home. Uh so the point of nomadic life is to continue to move and find homes, temporary homes in any place, but it's always going to be contingent. It's always going to be uh, sort of a, a, a temporary stay um, and there will always be a move again. So thinking of biblical text is not fully at home anywhere, but uh, in the sense that uh, there's no one context that you can kind of put these things into and say, well, they make total sense here, but nowhere else. Um they're, they're, they're always a bit out, outside of uh, settled life or, you know, sort of context in, into which they come. They're always from somewhere else and they're always moving to somewhere else. That is, uh, I can find thousands of contexts in which biblical texts have moved through before they came to me. And one of the ways I can look at biblical texts and study them is by looking at the patterns in which they continue to move. So this, I think, is a really crucial uh, question for us as biblical scholars. Um, h- how do I, uh, how do i study something that's moving and so i try to ask us to think about texts not as fixed things that tend to be pinged around uh, from context to context but as for, but thinking about texts as themselves uh processes uh they are they are uh able to be read in many different contexts um but also they undergo change people change them and people shift them around in different locations and really they kind of almost like gain different capacities based on the different locations that they're in in the same way that a migratory animal or a I mean, you can think about it as an animal that's brought out of their context and kind of is wandering around Atlanta, might find that they have certain abilities or capacities in Atlanta that they might not have and wherever uh, we imagine that their natural habitat would be. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they might uh, lose some capacities as well. I mean, a penguin would be awful hot walking around Atlanta. It's a good thing they don't do that very often. Um, but also there might be some animals that uh, wander around Atlanta and find they have... Uh, special kind of skills or whatever that uh, they develop here. Like for example, some animals might be terrifying in the streets of Atlanta and they wouldn't be terrifying in their home context. So thinking of text as things that, that wander around through time and space and uh, that gain or lose capacities based on the context in which they are found. Uh, but that are always going to be on the move to somewhere else. Um, and that there's no, best context in which to study them. There's no context at which this is their true home or their true location. Um, and so that's that's why I found this kind of idea of the nomad um, and thinking about how nomadic life works um, was helpful for me to try to get, get at some of my biases, uh, really, I think, about how we study texts as fixed things that are supposed to be in fixed locations.
0: Now, some people listening might uh, say, let's actually talk about some things here instead of sure. all this theory. Yeah, uh, right, right. So uh, uh, while I could talk about this for for hours longer, let's let's give them some meat, so to speak. Um, Great. you do this through this this case uh, in Job that you you uh, mentioned earlier in our conversation. Um, can you for for people that aren't familiar with this text, kind of um, just kind of set it up for us again, and then uh, basically walk us through how how does your approach uh, handle this text and uh, interpret it in various contexts and uh what what conclusions can you come to about it
1: yeah great uh yeah well, i won't be able to kind of summarize all of that here but um uh but yeah it, it, so i picked one text that says that from the book of job chapter 19 verses 25 to 27 uh a very influential and famous text in several different traditions and i picked it because i knew that it was used in different ways uh by different communities over time um And I just started to look at what it's done. And it was interesting. I started to kind of think about the text. And instead of saying, like, how do people interpret it, um, which is one one way of thinking about it, I I started to think about what – what kind of texts do? And in some ways, they push it back against their interpreters and their context. That was an interesting thing to see, too, and to realize that that needs to be part of our theory of texts. Um, not that they have agency like a person has agency, uh, but that, um, that they do have a structure to them. They, they, there's a sort of effect that their, uh, structure can have the, the, the way a text. Says something. Um, and it, uh, at times it can be surprising to people in a particular context to read their texts, uh, even their sacred texts that they think they know. Um, so in any event, uh, uh, looking at the book, at the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, I started to realize that there were several different, um, uh, sort of, I, I started to call these, uh, sort of trajectories or tendencies or, uh, it's sort of nodes uh, around which um, different interpretations of this text coalesce. So this text um, uh, can be read a couple of different ways, and in part the literary context in the book, even how you read the rest of the book of Job, which is a difficult text to read, and so there is several different, you know, very defensible, great ways to read this text, um, and in the way that you read the rest of the book of Job is going to affect what you think this kind of enigmatic text means. Uh, so there is a well-trod path in especially Christian uh, uh, tradition and Christian biblical scholars tend towards this uh, particular understanding of the text where um, uh, I know my redeemer lives uh, is talking about Jesus uh, or some sort of future understanding of a uh, divine being that can arbitrate between God and Job. So the, the basic story of Job is that uh, God punishes Job uh, God takes away pretty much everything that Job has and, uh, kills Job's children. And, uh, Job is, uh, understandably very upset about this. And, uh, Job begins to complain against God. And, uh, one of the things that Job comes up with is, um, this, uh, motif of an arbiter, uh, or that Job wishes that there was someone who could uh, arbitrate or mediate between him and God and set things right. Uh, and many Christians throughout history understood this to be a reference to, to Jesus. Uh, and this, uh, the, some of the other language in, the, in that text, Job 19, 25 to 27, uh, Mentions uh, Job's body, which he, it seems to suggest, at least in some readings of this text, that his body's being kind of put back together in a way. So some Christians have understood this to be the resurrection, uh, referencing that Job has been destroyed, but he's hoping that someday that there will be a reuniting of his body and so on, that he'll be resurrected. Um, sort of a, a healing motif to this text in a way. Um, so I looked at that, and I thought well, many biblical scholars now say, uh, contemporary biblical scholars at the moment say, well, this is not really very good reading of this text because it doesn't pay attention to the legal rhetoric of the book of Job. There's a way that we can read this text to the whole book of Job where Job develops a legal critique of God um, and uh, begins to wish, and eventually, at, at first it's kind of, he doesn't really... Uh, he, 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 thinks it's, it's, it's a lark. I mean, he doesn't really think that there's anything to this, but he ends up developing and over time, over throughout the book, uh, this motif where he, he wishes he could sue God, put God in the courtroom. And if he thinks that if he could do that, if he could just sue God and uh, get God on trial, that everyone would have to listen listen to Job's evidence and they listen to God's evidence, and uh, they would end up agreeing or that there would be some sort of heavenly arbiter that would agree, yes, God should be put in jail <laughs> and Job should be restored to his rights. So uh, uh, this legal critique uh, or this legal language of Job seems to influence a lot of modern scholars uh, who see this not as a call for a redeemer, as like a divine figure that's going to come and save Job, Uh, restore his body, and so on. But really, this is is about Job wishing that there was a uh, a legal redeemer uh, that is almost like a defendant, uh, or I mean, I guess a um, uh, an attorney that would come and take his um, his case up uh, and defend him uh, to God, uh, a, a sort of a divine um, defense attorney, um, and the, 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 it doesn't have the sort of Christian overtones of salvation and healing uh, that Christians tend to read in this text. Uh, then there's a third way of reading this text, which uh, which I found by looking at, at Jewish tradition, really the history of Jewish interpretation, and also. Uh, uh, Syriac and Eastern Christians, and Far Eastern Christian interpretations of the Bible, and um, uh, uh, the this this trajectory tends to focus on uh, Job nineteen twenty six, the the verse more than nineteen twenty five, um, but it has something to do with kind of Job's uh, looking at his body uh, and. So something about his body and knowledge of god and you know it's, 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 it's the, the text is difficult to read uh, it's a it's some people suggested that this kind of got jumbled over the over the years i think it's just good poetry and it's uh, kind of hard to read um, as many much good poetry is and it's suggestive more than it is uh, easy to be mailed down um but uh, so some some interpreters throughout history have ended up pointing out that uh, uh this might be that kind of uh uh, more like theophanic language that God understands some, Job understands something about God, um, by, by looking at himself, at his, at his, even at his body. Uh, and, uh, this notion of the theophany or God's appearance that Job's kind of wishing to actually see God or something like this, um, uh, actually happens in the book of Job. In chapter 38, uh, God appears in this whirlwind. Um, and there's a theophany and God, Job gets to talk to God. So there's a biblical, I think, and, and, you know, if we, if we talk about the, uh, the first, the Christian interpretation where it's this kind of resurrection, salvation, healing language, Job uses that language elsewhere in the book of Job. Uh, he references, uh, uh, uh basically Psalms of, uh, of, uh, lament where there's oftentimes this kind of turn towards, uh, a, an as the, the sufferer asks God for healing. So really how you read this text depends on how you structure the context. Like what is it, uh, the literary context, uh, you know, what what is job trying to say and part of what i my argument is we don't need to nail these down or make a hierarchy out of them or say one of them is right and the rest are wrong they're all pretty good readings of the book of job um, they're all just putting emphasis on different w- words in in this in this particular text in different uh potential meanings of these different words and that we don't have to um, kind of pick one and say it's the right one instead what we can do as biblical scholars or as textual scholars more generally is uh trace the trajectories of these different pretty good readings of the book of job in this particular particular text um, and and see what they do or what happens when people read the text these ways. Um, and so what I do is I trace these three different trajectories. I call them uh, 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 survival, presence and justice. Uh, so the first being this kind of notion of uh, resurrection or, or healing, redemption, uh, and that's the survival reading, uh, which reads this is basically lament psalm in which Job asks for bodily healing. Uh, and I point out that this is generally found in Christian tradition, but also it's found uh, there's there's a Jewish tombstone that seems to use the text in this way. So it transgresses the, uh, the, the uses of text tend to transgress borders uh, that um, that we tend to put put texts in. So a lot of reception historians will say, like, well, this is this is what Jews do with the text. Here's what Christians do with the text. Here's what Muslims do with the text. Here's what, you know, I don't know, agnostics do with the text or whatever. Um, they kind of treat uh, identities as bins into which you kind of throw these different receptions. What I try to show is that, um, if we make the text are the protagonist of our story, we'll find that different readings of the text will emerge, uh, in very different communities, but also sometimes these different communities will have competing <laughs> readings within the same community. Uh, sometimes particular readings will cross over communities. So, uh, instead of treating the text as a function of community or the people who are reading it, uh, let's, let's take that into consideration, of course, but let's really take note of how the text can work uh, in ver- in a variety of ways even within one community but also across community borders. So that one uh, sort of survival reading uh you know it's a, it's a notion of resurrection and so on uh Christians sing this hymn uh or this you know this, this these words as many different hymns during say Easter time and so on about the resurrection of Christ. Um the the the, the, the sort of trajectory of presence is very different. This is a theophanic reading that Job is talking about the theophany he wants to he wants to see God. He just wants God to be here and and confront him. Uh and this is actually in Jewish tradition this is used to understand uh God um uh this the, there's a notion that uh Job could look at his body almost like Abraham could look at his body and understand the Torah uh and understand God's teaching. Uh this was used to discuss uh the and and justify the Jewish practice of anatomical science uh during the Middle Ages which was uh um not allowed for Christians but uh but Jewish doctors uh you know used Job 19:26 to be able to justify their uh, uh medical procedures uh and to to study the body Better because studying the human body was one way to know God, and that was uh, justified by the text. Um, there are also, uh, Eastern Christian traditions, uh, so, uh, Syriac Christians and so on, um, continue today, uh, to use this, uh, uh, text as a, uh, Christmas text, as a text of the incarnation, uh, because it's seeing God in the flesh. Um, so they don't sing this text at Easter time like Western Christians do. They sing it, uh, at, uh, the time of, uh, uh, celebrating, uh, the incarnation. Um, and then a third trajectory that I point out is justice, this notion of the courtroom. If you read the text like a courtroom text, um, and uh, even early uh Jewish interpreters uh were reading this text like this. There's a um sort of early Jewish um uh uh translation of the text sort of in a very wooden way uh, uh into Greek from from Hebrew. And uh this is, this is a Theodosian, and it tends to um to read it in a very literalistic way, the Hebrew text. And from the Greek text that we have, it translates it as a sort of a a a, a redeemer uh in the legal sense. It seems to be sort of a, a companion that's going to take up Job's plea, like, like Job is hoping for a companion to come and pick up his plea, his legal plea against God even when he dies, uh, and continue the fight uh, to, to, to ask God why this happened, uh, even in his absence. So, you know, even in the Uh, you know, right around uh, the time of the destruction of the temple, uh, in 70 CE, there's already people reading this text in a variety of different ways, including this kind of justice trajectory, which modern scholars kind of imagine that, um, that they had invented. Um, but throughout history, we can also see other folks, uh, in Jewish and Christian traditions, uh, who have turned to this text, uh, to voice their frustrations about God and, uh, their anger at, at suffering and, uh, anger at their mistreatment that they understand is at the hands of God, um, and uh and i end the book by pointing out that uh, this this uh there have been modern uses in the modern Jewish tradition uh of uh looking at uh sort of the tombstones um the the this notion in, in modern Jewish history that there needs to be a, a a survey of historical uh uh treatment of jews um throughout history and uh, uh the sort of a turn to um uh memorialize really the lives of Jewish people uh, uh from the Middle Ages and onward. Uh this is a European movement generally. And um uh this is kind of collating, even walking through graveyards and writing down the names of people who have died and when they died and so on and and, and rewriting history from a Jewish perspective, uh in order to undo some of the damage that's been done in the Jewish community by Christian narration of history, uh, where Christians will say that, uh, there were certain Jews that, um, that were massacred and they deserved it and so on. This is a way of trying to rewrite some of those histories, uh, uh as histories of suffering and persecution. And, um, and, uh, Leopold Zunz, one of these, uh, historians, uh, uh, pulls out Job 1925, you know, for, uh, uh for I know my redeemer lives. Uh, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Leopold Zuns reads this as, uh, the historian, the modern historian is one who can look back at the past and, uh, be the advocate, uh, uh be the, 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 arbiter, the mediator in a way, uh, to represent, is it almost like a defense attorney, um, these people from the past, uh, who have been obliterated by, uh, by the march of, of, uh, um, sort of academic history, which has been, uh, tilted towards, um, European and, and uh, um, a Christian history, uh, and, and rewriting these and rediscovering these narrations. And I end up by characterizing, um, what we can do as biblical scholars is really kind of picking up Leopold Zunz's, uh, uh, task and saying what we what we can do as biblical scholars is instead of saying, Basically, everyone who's read the story, these biblical texts, um, in a way that's different than what I'm picking as the original context, uh, we shouldn't listen to them. Uh, there's one right way to read these texts. And there's millions of wrong ways. Um, people are stupid for reading them a different way and so on, uh, which is no one says that out loud in biblical scholarship. That's kind of what you get, uh, this sense that uh, people are um, – not doing it right throughout history uh, and we do it right because we put it back in its original context but instead we can see ourselves as people who listen to these voices of folks throughout history um who have read and used their texts in particular ways and uh we can um hear them and rewrite their stories and uh in in a way be kind of advocates for people throughout history um uh, who have used these texts but also to point out ways that these texts have been used destructively uh and ultimately uh I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm a practicing Christian. I'm uh, teaching a seminary and so on. I see, um, part of my job, uh, as, um, ethical in a way. I mean, I think that we are supposed to think about the, uh, at least, at least religious people who use these texts should think ethically about how we use texts. And instead of saying, this is what the text originally meant, whatever that means, uh, you know, wherever we put the point of origin, this is what the text originally meant. And this is what it means. And so on, instead of, uh, Wait, whatever ethics flow from it, you know, sort of let them flow. Um, We need to reconceive how we use texts, even in religious communities, um, and think of ourselves as responsible for the ethical effects that these texts have. So part of my plea at the end is to say, don't just ask, ask, what did this text mean? And stop there, but instead ask, what can these texts do? What have they done throughout history? And notice if there are particular texts that do terrible things all throughout history because they're used in particular ways, or texts that uh, are uh, ambivalent, that can do very good things and very bad things because of the ways that they can be used. And we need to kind of catalog in a way how these are used so that we can know uh, so that when religious communities use these texts, um, that we can we can see their effects. Uh, I, I, I've developed this idea kind of since the book, but I one of the things I try to ask people to think about is to think about books as, uh, or these biblical texts and so on as tools, um, and, and, uh, like a screwdriver or a hammer or something. Uh, uh, it's got a structure. It, it, it's got a, a kind of a, a, sense to it. You know, you can use a hammer to do particular things. You can't use it to do other things. Um, texts can do particular things well and other things it can't do very well. Um, but text can be used to do particular jobs. Like a screwdriver can screw in a screw, or it can be used to stab someone like a shiv. You know, you can, you can hurt people with these things. So, figuring out the, the ways that they can be used um, and also figuring out ways that people say they can be used, but they can't. Uh, so some people say this text means this, but you really read the text and you say, well, there's no resources there in the text. Whatever version of the text you're using, no version of the text has the resources in it that you're saying it can be used to, to mean this. Um, but every text can be used sort of well or justifiably um, to do a bunch of different stuff. And so for us to ask, how can these texts be used? Uh, and cataloging those uses and letting people know some of the effects of them. Um, like for example, we have a lot of contemporary discussions of our sexuality in religious communities that use biblical texts a lot. And the conversation seems to be, what did this text originally mean? Which I think is really troubling or difficult, uh, because, uh, like I said, this, these legal texts have gone through many different hands before they ended up being sort of in any biblical milieu. Um, so what did this text mean? Well, lots of different things probably before it was written down. Um, how, how do how do the how can these texts mean? What have they been used to do over the centuries? Maybe that's a better way for us to ask. Um, what we can do as biblical scholars to help people understand these texts and what they actually do. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but anyway, that's some of my thinking.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and it's a it's a wonderful book, and I hope he, uh, listeners and everyone will take hold of it because there's there's tons that we were not able to get to, but uh, we've taken a lot of your time. So bef- before I let you go, though, can you tell us a little bit about some of the some of the work you've been doing since you gave us a little bit about what you've been doing in your teaching um have you been thinking about reception history other things and in, in uh ways we we'd be interested in it?
1: yeah yeah so i have mean, got i got a bunch of things uh, you know uh, uh, sort of stuff on the on the burners um but uh, um, one one thing that I'm working on right now with uh, a colleague of mine, um, Davis Hankins, who's at uh, Appalachian State University, we're co-writing a commentary on Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, uh, a wisdom literature book from the Hebrew Bible, and um, we are very interested in uh, producing like a reading of the text. It's our reading. Here's how we read this text, but also in um, it, within the commentary itself, charting the reception history of this text in order to show many different ways that this text uh, can can function and sort of. Uh, know locating our own readings. Um, within this kind of these different trajectories um, uh, of of these different parts of the of the Book of Ecclesiastes, um, so that's one thing that we're working on right now and trying to figure out how to write a reception historical commentary and in, in you know sort of experimenting with that. Um, and then the next uh, monograph project I'm working on is uh, a monograph on the Four Kingdoms Schema. So this text from Daniel two and also kind of uh, recapitulated in Daniel seven. Uh, in Daniel two there's the the, the statue that has uh, four parts to it: the head of gold and so on, and different types of metals and so on. Uh, going down the statue and declining value, Um, and then also the four beasts that come from this mythical ocean, the uh, primordial sea in Daniel 7, uh, and how those represent four empires. Uh, And so tracing the history of this uh, four kingdom or four empire scheme um, that is uh, sort of uh, schematizing history in terms of a succession of four world empires and so I'm going to trace, uh, in Christian, Jewish, and Muslim tradition, um, as well as sort of non-religious uh, traditions of the modern era, um, how these texts have been used. And they've, they've been hugely influential, um, as a time structuring device, but also as a legitimation device, uh, um, for, for the powerful of the world and, uh, and also, um, as, uh, a source of, uh, kind of support and sucker and power and, and, uh, resistance, uh, for people who are being oppressed, uh, throughout history and throughout the world. So, uh, looking at how this text has worked, the sorts of things it's done, um, is pretty interesting to me. And it can explain even things like, uh, well, it can at least contribute to the explanation of uh, why Vladimir Putin is cozying up to the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, uh, and also why there is a motorcycle race called the Fifth Imperial Moto in uh, in modern Brazil. Um, so there's, the, the, the globe is sort of, um, uh, this this, thing, this text has worked its way, or this scheme has worked its way into the fabric of world history in many ways. So, in any event, yeah, that's, that's kind of the next, next
0: up. Cool. Sounds great. Well, uh, good luck with those, and thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Well, thank you so much, Christian. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Brennan Breed about his great new book, Nomadic Texts, A Theory of Biblical Reception History, published with Indiana University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Religion.